Then I would look at that at Excel log at the end of the day and look at all the stuff I was really doing and ask myself if that's stuff I should be doing or if it's stuff that I could teach somebody else to do once and never have to do it again. And that one little tweak where here's what I do, can I teach somebody to do this so I never have to do it again, really changed my life. Here's the thing, the fastest growing companies in the world, they're small businesses, often with less than 100 employees. So how are gritty entrepreneurs, CEOs, and founders like us going up against massive markets, scaling teams, building systems, and skyrocketing to success before crashing and burning? This podcast will give you those answers. My name is Chris Ronzio. Welcome to the fastest growing companies. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm Chris Ronzio and I'm here today with Ty Crandall. He's the CEO of Credit Suite. Hey Ty. Hey, how are you? Great, welcome to the show. Thanks man, I'm excited to be here. So real quick, tell everyone what is Credit Suite? What do you guys do? Well, we help business owners get capital and we do it by helping a business owner basically improve their fundability. It's all the stuff that lenders and credit issuers look at to really determine if you should get approved and how much money you should get and the rates and terms you pay. Uh, you know, the majority of loans aren't denied because you don't qualify. They're just denied because you don't meet basic lender and credit issuing requirements. So we fix that. We help business owners build business credit their EIN that's not linked to their social. So they don't personally guarantee their debts. And so they can get away from credit checks and being personally liable for what's happening uh, with the actual money they're obtaining in their business. And we help business owners access capital. So we've got about a thousand funding sources and we're really good at linking a business owner and their needs with a lending institution or a private lender uh, that can then help them get the money they need to, to facilitate those needs. Got it. I, I had an entrepreneur friend of mine say that uh, her CFO told her her business wasn't yet bankable. Uh, and I think that meant like you, you know, you had had trouble getting lending. Do you hear that from a lot of your customers? Well, there's the, the here's the interesting thing. You know, I met with a, a buddy of mine last night and he's in the insurance industry. And he, what he talked about was the billions of dollars that are lost every year because of fraud and insurance. And I said, you know, this is crazy. That's exactly what we deal with in banking. And that is the problem is that think about how much fraud as entrepreneurs were exposed to every day. These banks, it's overwhelming. I mean, eight or nine out of 10 applications they get aren't even real. They're all fake. So what happens is normal business owners just get caught in that mix where there's all these checks that lenders and credit issuers are doing. They're accessing this data from LexisNexis and these secret credit reporting agencies. And, and it's all just designed to even make sure they're dealing with an, a legitimate application. And a lot of us, we just we mess this up. We change our business address. We change our business phone number. We don't change our stuff everywhere online. And, and then all the checks they're doing looking for congruency, we don't meet those requirements. And what happens is a lot of our applications just get caught in that and get denied because they don't think that the application is even legitimate. So wow. yeah, I mean, being bankable, being lendable, being fundable, you know, meeting the lender and credit issuer's criteria, understanding what these computers are looking for, making sure you structure your business where you meet those requirements, but most importantly, making sure your business really looks legitimate and the information you're putting in an application is congruent everywhere is really important in order to be able to get the money that you need. Makes total sense. So why this business for you? When, when did you start this and why did you decide to start this business? You know, the first company I ever owned was a mortgage company and I thought I was a rock star. I built it seven figures pretty quick. And then uh, the mortgage crisis occurred. And, you know, it's interesting because I see this with COVID now that, you know, it's not a recession that kills you. It's what causes the recession that kills you. And in that case, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? Mortgage meltdown. And then as a result, uh, you know, I'm in the mortgage industry. So what happened was I lost everything. I personally guaranteed my business debts. So they came in, they wiped out all my personal accounts. I mean, it was just a bad situation. So I got into consumer credit to help people recover from the mess. And then what I realized along the way was a lot 
lot of business owners were asking me about business credit. I didn't know enough. I'd spent, you know, I don't know, 12 years of financial service at that point, knew nothing about it, couldn't find anything on YouTube and Google, et cetera. And then when I really discovered that you could build a credit profile for your business and separate liability and that all the heartaches I was having at the time wouldn't have happened if I would have done it the right way responsibly, then I kind of took it upon myself and felt that I needed to learn how the system worked and I was willing to teach it in real time. And so it was really kind of a self-exploration thing where I would go learn Dun & Bradstreet, what they do, how they work. And then I would put together a PowerPoint. I would teach it and just put it out in the world. And then it was months later that I realized that, that a lot of people were following what I was doing. And we built a tribe and we built a company and products to, to be able to serve business owners. And just been on that quest ever since to to get yeah. behind the scenes and figure out all the stuff that banks know about us that we don't know they know, how they make decisions, how we get caught up in this trap of, of, of not getting what we need, not because we don't qualify to get it, but because of all this other information that's being obtained about us. And that's just the mission I've been on ever since. I love how the need for this business came out of your last business. And I, I hear that from so many people. So it's very natural, organic story. Now, I, I'm going to ask a really elementary question before we get into the meat of this, because I think there's people out there that want to know. A lot of people start a business as a sole proprietorship, or maybe it's just a you know some, some kind of Schedule C income or a DBA or something like that. How do they even just start, just start getting some business credit? Is it registering an EIN and doing something or what can they, what's that first step for them to get some business? Well, the very first thing to know is you don't want to do a sole proprietorship. I think it's easy route. So a lot of people do it, but the problem fundamentally there is with a sole prop, you are the business and I'm not an attorney and I'm not accountant, not legal or accounting advice. But the problem there is, is that sole props get audited one in seven, uh, one in seven with the IRS corporations get audited one in 50. So significantly better chance of getting audited. But the further problem is, is that you are the business. If the business ever goes under, then you know, you're personally responsible for all those business debts. If the business ever gets sued, well, then you're getting sued as well. So you really have to create some layer of protection between you and the business. And that's corporation, that's LLC, that's even partnership in some cases as well. But yeah, it, it's coming in and it's setting up the business the right way from the beginning. There's over 125 of these fundability points, but some of the basic stuff that you want to do is try to avoid names that indicate you're in high-risk industries. Understand what industry you're really in. Most of us don't know what NAICS code we have, and that's a code designated that we really choose what industry we're in. And this is used by credit bureaus. It's used by lenders and credit issuers. It's used by the IRS. It's used by the SEC. A lot of things are done comparing us to other people in our industry. And if we don't even know what industry we're in, it's problematic. So you need to clearly know what your NAICS code is. And I'll give you an example. You know, you might say you're in real estate, but there's 32 subcategories of real estate. So you have to really know what you're doing. And when you're applying for loans and credit cards and even setting up a bank account. Now, I set up a bank account the other day. And my banker said, you know, what, what, what business are you in? It's such a general question. But, you know, I give her the exact NEICS code and the exact definition. So there's never a question. So you need to have those things done. You need to have your basics done. You need to have a website set up that reflects you, you, your, your, what the products and services you sell. You need to have a professional email address, not a Gmail or, or you know, Yahoo type email address. You need to have a business address. You need to have a business phone number. Voice over IP works. Virtual address works. But you don't want to use home addresses and people and boxes, UPS addresses. Sure. You don't want to use home phone and mobile phones on application for credit or financing. The easiest way to explain it is just 
when you fill out an application for credit financing, you have to think about what's being asked. And every answer you're putting down, you have to really ask, does it reflect that you're a credible business? Does it make you look legitimate? Does the answer you're putting down there um, creating the perception that you want a lender or credit issuer to have? And if the answer is no, you really got to take a step back and just structure your business and set up a business where you look reputable, you look credible. And if you kind of follow that advice, and I think you'll get some of the basic fundability items down. Yeah, it makes sense. All right. So over the last few years, you went from 11 to 70 people. Now I want everyone to understand how you guys actually make money. Is it courses? Is it consulting? Is it fees on, on lending? Like how, how does your business generate money to, to add more people to it? Uh, our main forms of revenue is software sales. So what we do is sell a product called our business finance suite and through it, our customers can build fundability, build business credit, and they can also get financing and they work with our funding team and our advising team to help them through the step-by-step -step software. So that's the majority of what we sell. And that accounts for, you know, over 80% of the revenue that we bring in. We put partners in the business of being able to uh, offer business credit and financing as a service as well. So we have a partner program where they resell our product, White Label. Um, and so with that, we also come in and we help them uh, buy, you know, or buy wholesale units that they sell retail. Well, then they have upsells there uh, where they're able to come in and get more access to, to us, more access to, the, to, to getting paid on funding products, et cetera. And then we make commissions on the funding that we help with, although that's a very uh, small portion of what we actually uh, earn there. Okay. So our revenue comes from a lot of different places, but it's usually some subscription upsell revenue. It's the sales of our actual software and very small amount actually comes in back in commissions from funding sources. So as you went through that journey from, you know, 10 or 11 people up to 70 today, what do you think the secret sauce is? Like what really took off that enabled you to just keep growing? What makes you different from other people that might be doing this? Well, you know, first of all, you, I, I, it's, you have to have a scalable way of doing it. I think a lot of business owners start with referral and, and that type of marketing, and it's just not scalable. You can't scale business on that. So I've really found that scaling a business marketing-wise, and that's my strong suit is marketing and sales, it really has to happen on two pillars. You have to have organic growth, which means you have to be really good at creating and curating content and distributing that content. You have to be able to do live streams. You have to have organic social media where you're putting a lot of that content out in the world. You need to have a podcast. You need to have as many distribution vehicles as you can to delivering good quality educational content. So my world, you know, I, I don't want to, 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 I don't feel like I, my mission is to help people build business credit. If that's truly my mission, then I can't charge everybody to do it. I need to be willing to for free educate people on how to do it and give people a choice, whether they go the free longer path or they go the shorter path and, and work with us direct. So I think you have to be very good at educating and creating, curating content and distributing yeah. content. On the other side, you need, to, you need to get into paid digital. You need to be able to find scalable ways to grow the business, to increase ad spend and know you spend a dollar and get $3 in return. Nowadays, you know, Google and Facebook, the statistics are crazy, like 80, 90% of all advertising dollars are spent on those platforms for good reason, because they have, you know, a lot of information about us and they help us really target market our customers. So right. that's, that's it for me. It's that simple. You know, if you come in and you're very good at curation and distribution of content and providing quality education and you combine that with a well-orchestrated sales funnel that, you know, gives away a, a lead magnet, a free guide, a free report, something of value, gets people to a sales funnel, again, delivers them consistent value. And then from there, you get them onto a sales call where you, again, deliver consistent value to them. 
on a on a consultation or sales call, uh, I think that process could be adapted in any business. Now, that doesn't have to do anything about the staffing. And I'll answer questions on that. But that, to me, is how you could take any business from startup to seven or eight figures fairly quickly is those two pillars. So you mentioned going from referral into marketing and sales. And, you know, the same was true for me. My last business was a consulting business, and it was mostly referral driven, whereas Trainual, we have a marketing engine that runs it. And I think that's a really hard transition for a lot of businesses to make. So did you start this business at the very beginning with those kind of marketing efforts or was there a key hire in your first few people or how did you give yourself the, the marketing muscle to be able to do this? You know, the funny thing is when I think about when I started and I'm not saying this proudly, I kind of laugh at it because it makes me think I went to Upwork at the time, which is where Upwork Odesk was at the time. Yeah. And I got list builders for $1 an hour, which you can no longer do. I think they started four bucks an hour. And then I had these people build massive lists of businesses with email addresses. And I believed enough in our email funnel and the quality that it delivered that I just dropped thousands and thousands and thousands of people in our email funnel and spammed them. And I'm not proud of that, but I didn't have any money to market, right? And you know, it's what we do as entrepreneurs. We just get scrappy. So that's how I got scrappy. And we just built these lists. And what we realized was that people were not opting out, even just spamming them. And so uh, then the interesting thing is, is I read this great book by Perry Marshall on 80-20 marketing, sales and marketing. Love that book. You love the book, right? So I went home that day and I thought, oh my gosh, like this is a life changer. And so I went through our YouTube videos and I did an 80-20 analysis. And sure enough, like, you know, 80% of our views came from like, you know, one video. It worked out as exactly 80-20. And this video was on some crazy thing, like how to build business credit for your EIN that's not linked to your SSN, like something that most people, I wouldn't even make sense to be the most popular topic. And then I had that transcribed into a free guide and I ran Facebook ads to it and it was an absolute hit. And now as I look at that, we've got over a million downloads to that guide. That guide's still one of those popular guides that we've ever had. And once I figured that out, then I started to turn it up and scale and you know started to measure everything through and realize we got a positive ROI and spent more, spent more. And then anybody that's done Facebook ads knows what happens next. I'm like, okay, this is great. I'm rich. I just turn it up and everything happens. And the minute you turn up volume on Facebook, everything falls apart. And right. then eventually it got <laughs> to, you know, it never works out that way. It's hard to scale with Facebook for some reason. So then at that point, um, we needed to bring a marketing person in and we had enough evidence that what we were doing was going to produce an ROI that we knew we could scale the company based on increased ad spend. And then we brought somebody else in to just handle the moving target that Facebook and Google advertising and marketing are and, you know, increased our spend through time. And that's where we are now where we spend, you know, a million dollars plus a year on those platforms. You know, it's funny when I when I read that book and I audited my website and all my content and what I was putting out, I had this one article that was like how to get a mortgage as an entrepreneur. And I know you came from the mortgage business. So it was like my experience on how I struggled to get a mortgage as an entrepreneur. So I put together this massive checklist and this thing was ranked number one on Google, like above Forbes and above Inc. And like all, all this stuff It was getting tons of traffic. And so I'm scratching my head, like, how do I turn this into revenue? Am I going to start selling mortgages? It had zero to do with the rest of my business, but it was just this like lighthouse piece of content. So it's funny when you do that audit. Yeah, on your, it's, on your it's a crazy thing. And, and who would think, right? How to get a mortgage, like as a business owner's entrepreneur, that just doesn't even make sense that something like that would rank so high. Right. But it really goes to show how little we truly understand what our audience really wants and the importance of using metrics and, and, and KPIs and data to really be able to track that. 
And, you know, the funny thing is now is that still our second most popular guide. Our first most popular guide has to do with 17 credit lines. And again, we found that with an 80-20 analysis, just figuring out on YouTube what clearly stood out, building yeah. a guide around that piece of content, running campaigns around it. So now I just think that's the way to do it. You just put out tons of content. You find what really stands out is that is, is leads driving tons of leads. Then you make that into a lead magnet. Then you push traffic to that through ads. And it, it, it could work for years and years. Like I said, we've downloaded well over a million downloads of, of, of that one guide. So, so this could very quickly, easily turn into a whole marketing episode. And I think people need to listen you know, to the 80-20 strategies and think about your content and think about the importance of marketing. But I want to shift and just ask you a question. You know, as you went from testing those kind of marketing efforts and to hiring a dedicated marketing specialist, it sounds like, um, was there a point in the business where you went from general people, your first few people to specialists in all areas of the business? You know, it, it, the interesting thing I think along this journey has been is that we, you know, and I think I could say we, because I think all of us entrepreneurs are the same way. At one point we sit there and go, man, how do businesses like Amazon or Oracle or any of these things have this many people? Like, how do you manage that many people? And then when you put the trenches and you have to start scaling and doing it, you understand, you figure it out, right? You read every book and you really figure out the best way to be able to do it. So for us, it's interesting because we've probably had over 200 employees and um, we've only had less than like four or five ever quit. So our retention's insanely high. But it's really high because we just we hire based on core value and cultural fit. And we believe most skill sets can be taught. And so that's a strategy we've adapted for a very long time. We don't necessarily seek out experts in their field. We prefer to find people with some expertise in the positions we're hiring for. But what care what we care most, most about is cultural fit. If they're a good cultural fit, we bring them in because that means they'll stay and we can spend the time and money in giving them the education they need to be able to succeed. So that is over aptitude, they say, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's very true. I mean, uh, we've had this massive success. It's interesting because it also gives the ability to move people around in roles and have them handle multiple roles or in career planning, figure out where they want to go. And it's oftentimes not where they are, but you know, it doesn't, we don't care. It's not like we got a salesperson that was a master salesperson. We kind of helped them develop those skills. So if they want to go to business development or somewhere else now, it's not that big of a of, 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 of a thing for us to change and keep them on the right path they want to be career-wise. So uh, in, my, in that hire, I, I, we hired Jen and Jen was a guy that had some marketing experience behind him, had worked with a smaller company and uh, he's still with us today and it has worked really well. So that's kind of how we hire and, and, and how we go about finding people that are a cultural fit and then bringing them in and giving them, helping them further develop the skill set to be able to adapt where they are now. Um, we've really realized the importance of A players, you know, and an A player is somebody you can let loose and they get the job done if they understand the mission to accomplish the job yeah. without coming back to you again and again and need help. They just go execute and get things so, done. So what's your process then on on tracking that career path, on, on keeping the conversation, the dialogue open so you understand when someone wants to move from sales to business development or whatever it is that they're doing? Well, our team leads have a review process every quarter where they go through with a, with an actual team member, review where they are up to date, have a career planning session of where they want to go, uh, what they want to do. Are they on track with where they want to be? What does it look like for them a year from now, three years from now? Where do they want to be? So we go over that every quarter with each one of our team members. The team leads does that in a quarterly assessment with the team so, so 70 people now, how, how does your workload look? You know, like what, what, it, what is your job these days and how has that evolved over the years? 
I feel like all my jobs have been taken <laughs> at this point. <laughs> You know, look, we built Credit Suite from the beginning um, with exit in mind. And so you have to be able to pull yourself out of the business. The business has to be able to run without you. So my, my first of all, happens with a good business partner. And I'm not saying you need that, but my life changed when I found that. When I figured out that I'm really good at sales and marketing, those are my loves. And I'm not good at operations and all the detailed stuff. And I found somebody that was really good at that stuff. And then we, we, we butted heads a lot because we're very different. And then we realized that we're different, which is great, like yin and yang. And then we were able to play off each other and put our strengths together. That was a big difference for me because it gave me the ability to do what I love, which is sales and marketing and not do the legal, the billing, all the stuff I do not want to do. And so that worked out really well. And then it just kind of comes down to um, – you, you, you start to, you know, when we get to enough people, which is five, then we, you know, assign a team lead. Those team leads then assign that, that team of five people. And then we work diligently to make sure that those team leads have good training, good access to information, quality people. We just got off a training session before this started with an outside expert that came in that taught all the team leads things about communication, for example. So love it. Yeah. So any tips for someone then who's struggling to let go of the things on your plate? I love I love that you say all, all my jobs have been taken, but that means at some point you had all these jobs and you've, uh, you know, behind the scenes done a great job passing those jobs off to other people or finding the right people. So for someone that's listening and still holding on to the reins, what would you say to them? I, I like to define myself as the laziest workaholic you'll ever meet. And, you know, by that, I mean that I don't, I am so big on delegation and automation that I will work tirelessly to build systems that automate processes. So I don't want to have to do it. So you have to get really good at technology. And there's this great book I I just read about like what to do when machines do everything. And it's really fantastic because it talks about AI and the development of technology and digital tech. And, and how you really need to use that and adopt automations and systems and where the future is going and how you need that needs to be an important part. So I think you have to really understand automation. And then outside of that, you, you, the way I best did this was I went through a day and every single thing I did, I put on an Excel log. Every single task I accomplished, I put on an Excel log. Then I would look at that at Excel log at the end of the day and look at all the stuff I was really doing and ask myself if that's stuff I should be doing or if it's stuff that I could teach somebody else to do once and never have to do it again. And that one little tweak where here's what I do, could I teach somebody to do this so I never have to do it again, really changed my life. Then it was a matter of going and getting virtual assistants. Like women from the Philippines are like my favorite people in the world because they're phenomenal. They're so appreciative to have a job. They don't have, there's no drama. You teach them how to do something. They do it just consistently for the lifetime. And so, and, and when you're an entrepreneur getting started, you don't have the money to hire a bunch of people, but you know, four bucks or five bucks an hour, I can hire somebody for five bucks an hour to take it off my plate. Then you start to link mentally the stuff together. You start to say, this is insane. Like, is this worth my time when I could do it once and have somebody at five bucks an hour do it for me? Yep, nope, five bucks an hour, five bucks an hour, five bucks an hour. And then it just, it's just this mad rush of filming videos and every single thing you do. And then it's just, it's kind of crazy. I spend sometimes more time through that process thinking, is this something I should be doing or not? Um, than just doing the task because it, it, it really gets you to condition to a point where you realize there's so much stuff you shouldn't be doing. And when you get other people to come in and do it and they can do it consistently, you keep the higher level stuff. And then eventually you hire higher level team members that could do that stuff. And, you know, it just continues to progress from there. 
And that's it. You just run through the whole process. I mean, for anyone that's listening, he just gave you the shortcut. So Ty, if, if people want to find out more about you or uh, Credit Suite, where should they find you? We're at creditsuite.com. That's creditsuite, S-U-I-T-E. So creditsuite.com. Awesome. So you heard it from Ty himself. He is the laziest workaholic that you'll ever find. And he's grown this business from about 10 or 11 people up to 70 people in just a couple of years um, by doing the simple things, by delegating, by uh, handing off jobs until he doesn't have any left, by documenting the things that uh, someone else could do more cheaply than him. And so replay this episode, go listen to his tips and pay special note to the marketing, the investment in marketing at the beginning that was the real lever for him being able to grow his business. Ty, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Chris. I had a blast. Hopefully you can all borrow a page from Ty's playbook as you build your own. We'll see you next time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Fastest Growing Companies podcast. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you found the information helpful, share it with your friends and family that can benefit from it. You can also find Trainual's company account at Trainual, just like a training manual. We'll see you next time.